Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to the Cinematic Crypt, a motion picture podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Corner, Rosalie Kicks, otherwise known as Betzina Belfry. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Ah, it does feel good to stretch my legs, goblins and ghouls. It has been a year since I have spoken with you, my dear crypt dwellers. I hope you have missed me. I was concerned that you wouldn't be here, but was sure you would not want to miss venturing out on such a terribly dark and stormy night. Time may have passed, but I refuse to see our departure from the crypt as tragic. Surely, everyone is well rested and experienced the most chilling frightmares during their slumber. A monstrous fiend of mine and fellow crypt dweller, Roderick Towers, enlightened me with this in regards to my long hiatus, and I thought I would share it with you, goblins and ghouls. He said, I would not think of it as a tragedy. Whatever time off you've had was just leading you to the next time you would awaken in the crypt. Oh, how right you are, Roderick. I must not dwell on the loss of time. The important thing is we are here now, gathered in the crypt for another thrilling tale of the beyond. There's no sense dwelling on our losses. We just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. I must say, I have never felt more alive. After the many months securely blanketed in my bunk, it feels absolutely divine to have the pale moonlight gracing my flesh once more. I must, however, reveal that I woke up feeling a bit peculiar, with a sensational hunger unlike one I have ever felt before. Upon inspection, I discovered two small punctures at the side of my neck and believe that I may have been bitten. How truly marvelous. Being that I now have morphed into a vampire, the name Rosalie simply won't do. So I shall be known otherwise for purposes of this program as Batzina Belfry. Let's scare up some frights, shall we? It's time to get spooky, goblins and ghouls. Good evening, and welcome to my castle. I'm Bill Cardell. My second feature tonight is Voice to the Bottom of the Sea, with Walter Pigeon, Frankie Avalon, Peter Lorre, etc., etc., etc. An adventure that you'll enjoy. But right now, a favorite of mine. Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And I don't mean the kind you ride, vroom, vroom, but the kind you run from. Stay out of the shower for at least the next few hours. Psycho is loose. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's something like this. Ah. You just heard the voice of Chili Billy, a horror host who hailed from the ghastly streets of Pittsburgh, PA. Crypt dwellers, before we get to our main attraction, let's spend some time in the cemetery, shall we? Join me under the pale moonlight and let's pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. This evening, we shall visit the grave site of Bill Cardill, otherwise known as Chili Billy. In fact, what you are hearing now, Goblins and Ghouls, is the theme song entitled Experiment and Tear, which was his theme song to his show, Chiller Theater. The song was originally performed by Henry Mancini and then re-recorded for the program by Al Keola. Chili Billy did not come off as a typical horror host, as his attire was not much of the macabre or ghoulish sort. He didn't sport fangs or have a ghastly complexion either. Instead, he was draped in a dapper tuxedo. He would go on to serve as Pittsburgh's horror host of Chiller Theater for 20 years, beginning in 1963 until New Year's Eve of 1983, running on WPXI-TV, Channel 11. Like many horror hosts we have dug up previously, he would introduce the films, typically a double feature, and perform wacky skits during the breaks, taking on various different personalities, such as Captain Bad, Maurice the Matchmaker, Little Old Monster Maker, and Mr. Magnificent, who was known for reciting horoscopes. Let there be light, and a burnt finger or two. Mr. Magnificent says the secret of happiness is curiosity. Agree? About your horoscope, impatience is unfortunate characteristics of many born under Aries, while hazard or Virgo natives is overconfidence, and they should not try to do everything themselves. And routine work bores and tires average Aquarian, which causes him to use imagination and inventiveness. Ideas are much like children. Your own are wonderful. Mr. Magnificent leaves your presence with, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. So true. Oh, so true. Rest your eyes, my subject. Having his start in radio in Indiana, PA, also the birthplace of actor James Stewart, he had numerous roles, such as Weatherman and a host of kids' programs prior to becoming the host of Chiller Theater. Even after he took on the role of Chili Billy, he continued to work on other Channel 11 programs, such as Six O'Clock Hop, Polka Time, and Studio Wrestling. I was intrigued by one particular short-lived show that he hosted, Mysteries Beyond, which he focused on the exploration of UFOs, ghosts, and psychic phenomena. 
When he began hosting Chiller Theater, the original set was a laboratory of sorts, and then later would be transformed into a castle setting. It did not take long for management to realize they had a hit. After 13 weeks, they went from airing one film to double features and changed the time from Saturday afternoon to Saturday night. Chilly Billy believed the audience would tire of him dressed as one character, so he created various personas. He would often announce the films off screen using a slow and spooky delivery. In 1976, the station constructed a new castle, and it was also at this time that a Chiller family was introduced, consisting of the castle keeper, Norman Edler, Donna Ray as Terminal Stair, Steve Luzinski as Stefan, the castle prankster, and Joyce Sterling as Sister Susie. Generally, two family members would appear on each episode, except on Halloween, when there would be a giant monster mash gathering. <laughs> Rumor has it, goblins and ghouls, that it was Chiller Theater which served as inspiration for Pennsylvanian filmmaker George Romero. After Georgie saw the Vincent Price picture, Last Man on Earth, it was this movie that made him decide he could make a better motion picture, which gave us the spooktacular horror movie, Night of the Living Dead, in 1968. Do you remember one time when we were small, we were out here? It was from right over there. I jumped out at you from behind the tree, and Grandpa got all excited, and he shook his fist at me, and he said, Boy, you be damned to hell! <laughs> remember that? Right over there. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny! You're still afraid. Stop it now, I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny! Chilly Billy even had a cameo in the film, playing the field reporter, and he would also go on to help promote the movie when it was released, as the premiere occurred in Pittsburgh. Another interesting fact, goblins and ghouls, is that Billy's daughter, Lori Cardile, would later go on to be in Romero's Day of the Dead. Chiller Theater became extremely popular among other Pittsburgh natives as well, such as horror makeup extraordinaire Tom Savini and also Joe Blasco. Well, Chief McClellan, how long do you think it will take you until you get the situation under control? Well, that's pretty hard to say. We don't know how many of them there are. We know when we find them, we can kill them. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Well, uh, in time, would you say you ought to be able to wrap this up in 24 hours? Well, we don't really know. We know we'll be into it most of the night, probably into the early morning. We're working our way toward Willard, and we'll team up with the National Guard over there, and then we'll be able to give a more definite view. Thank you very much, Chief McClellan. This is Bill Cardill, WIC TV 11 News. In 1983, the show would be canceled, and Chilly Billy would go back to his roots as a weatherman and serve as an MC at Miss USA pageants 
in Ohio and Pennsylvania, sporting a tuxedo of corpse. Bill Cardiel passed away on July 21st, 2016, at the age of 87 years young. Crypt Dwellers, you can learn more about Chili Billy at his official website, Chiller Theatre Memories. I leave you now with the song recorded in 1971 by Chili Billy, entitled Chili Billy's Vamp. Feature presentation. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get uncomfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. <laughs> Today's episode will mark the second entry in the series, Crafty, Cunning, Conniving Charlatans. Through the course of this series, I will examine a total of four films featuring a charlatan who is up to some fraudulent, phony, and deceiving tricks. This evening, I will uncover and examine the 1947 Edmund Goulding picture, Nightmare Alley, starring Joan Blondell, Colleen Gray, Helen Walker, and tonight's corpse of interest, Tyrone Power. Tyrone Power was born May 5, 1914, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and became a matinee idol in the 1930s due to his handsome good looks and roles as a romantic lead. Maybe it was, I thought, now that I've seen you, that it maybe was the beard, because you don't look like the same Tyrone Power. What is the beard for while we have you? That's for the play, for the dark is light enough. Yes. What yes, do you Tyrone, you're not six feet tall. You said over, over six, six feet tall. Just six feet. We had him measured with an o'clockless Newton's office, and it came out just right at six feet. Thank you very much, Darren. Thank nice you. Very to have you with us. 
Although he gave his height as six feet, Tyrone was known to wear lifts in his pictures and actually stood at about five foot 10 inches. He started his days in the theater at age 16, working as an usher in the Orpheum Theater in Cincinnati, Ohio. His interest in the profession of acting, however, can be credited to his father, Tyrone Power Sr., who was a stage and screen actor himself. Sadly, Tyrone's father passed away in December 1931 as he was preparing to perform in The Miracle Man. After his father's death, Tyrone decided to continue his pursuit of acting. He struggled initially despite attempting to utilize former contacts from his father and found he was only able to land bit parts. In 1936, Tyrone made the trek to Hollywood where he met director Henry King, who was impressed with the young lad's confidence and, of course, his good looks. It was Henry that insisted Tyrone complete a screen test for the leading role in Lloyd's of London. This particular role was initially intended for a former corpse of the show, Don Amici. Ghost Connection! Featured in episode 27. It took some time convincing, but ultimately, Tyrone got the role, being billed fourth despite having the most screen time of the cast. Essentially, he walked into the premiere of Lloyd's of London, an unknown, and walked out a Hollywood star. From 1936 until 43, Tyrone would star in 23 flicks, consisting of romantic comedies such as Thin Ice and Daytime Wife. He also is featured in a sprinkling of dramas such as Blood and Sand, Son of Fury, The Story of Benjamin Blake. An infamous role of his from this time was the 1940 swashbuckler, The Mark of Zorro, in which Tyrone played the role of Don Diego Vega, aka Zorro, who is a dapper gent by day and a bandit hero clad in black by night. This picture was a major hit for 20th Century Fox and propelled power into doing more dramatic roles. A little-known fact, Crypt Dwellers, is that Power himself, much like the character Zorro, was a talented swordsman, which made many of the scenes performed in the motion picture highly regarded. All in all, Tyrone was the second biggest box office draw in 1939, only being eclipsed by Mickey Rooney, if you can believe it. Unfortunately, in 1943, his acting career would find itself derailed due to being drafted for military service. He would not be released from active duty until 1946. Did you see those looks Uncle Elliot was giving me at dinner? Well, after all, Larry, a man must work. And the longer you put it off, the harder it'll be. I've got a foolish notion I want to do more with my life than just sell bonds. All right, then. Go into a law office. I don't want to do that either. What do you want to do, then? I don't know. Loaf, maybe. Oh, Larry, don't be funny. This is serious. I'm not being funny. I think it's very serious. That was a clip from the 1946 Edmund Goulding picture, Razor's Edge, starring Tyrone Power, Gene Tierney, and Anne Baxter. The film tells the story of a young man that is seen as a bit of an eccentric due to his notions of going off to find himself. This causes him to fall out of his socialite circle. Unfortunately, even with the truth staring her in the face, 
a young woman continues to pursue his love, despite already being married. This is such a powerful film. I recently had the opportunity to watch this picture after receiving a complimentary Blu-ray from Signal One. I reviewed the film over at moviejohn.com and recommend that you seek this film out. Prior to seeing Tyrone in this movie, I had believed Nightmare Alley was my favorite film that he starred in, but this clearly skyrocketed to the top. I love the picture's overall messaging, and it definitely came into my life at just the right time as I ponder some monstrous life changes myself and question what is truly important to me. After the release of The Razor's Edge, Tyrone's next slated picture was the 1947 Nightmare Alley, another picture directed by Edmund Goulding, and a flick that Tyrone had to work hard to persuade the Hollywood moguls to allow him to make. The concern was within the pages of the script and the character that Tyrone was slated to play. There was worry that if he were to play such a dark role of Stanton Carlyle, it could possibly tarnish his clean-cut image. Despite this being one of Tyrone's favorite films that he worked on, it was a box office failure. This film is the subject of our episode, My Dear Crypt Dwellers, so we will hear more about the film in just a little bit. With Nightmare Alley being such a flop, Daryl Zanuck, the famed Hollywood studio executive of 20th Century Fox, immediately placed Tyrone back in the costume-clad flicks such as Captain from Castle in 1947 and romantic comedies That Wonderful Urge and The Luck of the Irish, both in 1948. Sadly, 1949 did not bring luck for power either, as he found himself in two swashbuckler flicks. By 1950, Tyrone was becoming extremely frustrated with the parts he was receiving in Hollywood. After refusing to taking a role in the film Lydia Bailey, he was placed under suspension by the studio. He was quoted as saying, I'm sick of all these knights in shining armor parts. I want to do something worthwhile, like plays and films that have something to say. Following this, Tyrone found the roles to somewhat improve and was given permission by the studio to seek work outside of 20th Century Fox. His last film with the studio would come in 1957, a motion picture entitled The Sun Also Rises, which was a film adapted from the Hemingway novel and co-starred Ava Gardner and Errol Flynn. His last film would also come in 1957, in which he played accused murderer Leonard Vole in the Agatha Christie adaptation Witness for the Prosecution, which was directed by Billy Wilder. The last work that Tyrone filmed was a public service announcement for television about spotting signs of a heart attack. Sadly, as well as eerily, Tyrone would pass away due to a heart attack while on set, which coincidentally also occurred to his father. While filming a dueling scene in the epic Solomon and Sheba with his co-star and previous guest of the cinematic crypt, George Sanders, Tyrone passed away while being transported to the hospital on November 15, 1958. He was buried at Hollywood Memorial Cemetery, which is now known as Hollywood Forever Cemetery, where they hold an anniversary memorial service on the date of his death. His tombstone is in the form of a marble bench, and it adorns the masks of comedy and tragedy on it, along with the quote, Good night, 
sweet prince. For those who enjoy a bit of wills and thrills, Tyrone's last wish was to have his eyes donated to the Estelle Doheny Eye Foundation for transplantation or study. I just have the feeling. That's why I'm going to keep away from you. You know... What? I wonder why I'm like that. Like what? I'm never thinking about anybody. Except myself. Well, you don't think I'd go without you. You mean that, Stan? Absolutely. You satisfied? Oh, Stan. I don't care for nothing now. Nothing in the world. You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind uh -oh. of a... It takes one to catch one. That snippet you just heard, Crypt Dwellers, is from the trailer for the 1947 film Nightmare Alley, which is the motion picture I have exhumed for tonight's episode. Nightmare Alley is a film noir that tells the rise and fall of charlatan Stanton Carlyle, played by Tyrone Power. Adapted from the novel written by William Lindsay Gresham, which I must add, I recently read and found to be quite different than the film itself. But I will get to that a bit later. The dark tale opens under the bright lights of the carnival. The author, William, had a bit of an obsession with carnivals, spiritualism, and occultism. Sadly, William suffered from alcoholism, which inevitably plays a part in Nightmare Alley's tragic story as well. In 1962, he would check into the Dixie Hotel in Manhattan, where it was known that he wrote Nightmare Alley. It was there that he would end his life by overdosing on sleeping pills. Business cards were found in his pocket upon his death that read, No address, no phone, no business, no money, retired. William was quite intrigued by carnies, seeing them as being honest. They are what they are. Uh, this creature, there he is, the geek. He has puzzled the foremost scientists of Europe and America. Is he the missing link? Is he man or beast? Some have pronounced him man, but beneath that shaggy mane of hair lies the brain of a beast. Look, if he should as much as sink his teeth into my arm, nothing on this round green earth could save me. Now, folks, it's feeding time. The introduction of the geek becomes a foreshadowing element throughout the film as the viewer pays witness to Stanton sliding down the slope of his own demise. I love how this film, right off the bat, introduces the viewer to a bunch of characters, all of which leave an impression. We are becoming acquainted with the characters much like Stanton is, being the new guy to join the carny racket. However, it is Xena and Pete that immediately catch his eye as he watches them perform their mentalist act. Molly, a fellow carny, provides the history of the couple as a once-top-billed vaudeville act. Xena played most excellently by Joan Blondell. Geek is one of our biggest draws, but a lot of performers won't work a show that carries one. I can't understand how anybody could get so low. That can happen. 
I want to thank you, Zena. Me? Uh-huh. What for? For being so nice to me. Helping me with my spiel and everything. Oh, I think you've got something, Stan. Honest? You like this racket, don't you? Oh, lady, I was made for it. She's just so superb in this. And it's definitely one of her best older pictures. Zena's going good. She sure knows how to put on an act. Sure does. Too bad she's tied up with that rum-dum. Why? Well, she could grab herself a smart guy and make the big time in no time. But she's already been in the big time. She and Pete used to be one of the biggest headliners in vaudeville. Not with that act. Uh-uh. Pete stayed in the audience. He never came near the stage. But how could they do that? How could he tip her off to anything? They used a code, silly. Code? What kind of a code? A word code between the two of them. Zena says that blindfold code is worth its weight in gold. Stanton is determined to obtain the code that Zena and Pete utilize in their act. He immediately starts charming Zena and clearly wants to work Pete out of the picture. I think this is where Tyrone's acting abilities shine, as he truly was a smooth talker. Initially, Zena is on board with the idea of teaching Stanton the code, as long as they don't forget about Pete. Pete is suffering from alcoholism, another moment of foreshadowing of what is to come for Stanton, and Zena has vowed to always take care of him. Zena is pretty much on board with teaching the code to Stanton. Well, that is until she has a word with her tarot deck. What kind of deck is this? This is a tarot. Oldest kind of cards in the world. Pete says the gypsies brought them out of Egypt. They're a wonder for giving private readings. Don't say, they look plenty weird. Whenever I have something to decide or I don't know which way to turn. Look, Stan, that's the Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. That means we're gonna knock them dead. Pete and I never had it this good. What did I tell you? What's the matter? Well, I don't know. Everything looks wonderful for us. Money, happiness, and, and great success, but there's no sign of Pete in it. How could he be if he's away taking the cure? Yeah, but there's no sign of him anywhere, dead or alive. Oh. Yeah, maybe this is Pete. Did you knock this off the table? No, you must have dropped it yourself. Don't see how I could. Was it face up or down? Face down. Are you sure? Yeah, why? Couldn't be like that. It's too awful. It's too crazy. What's got into you? Get your bath and get out of here. What's the matter? It's all off, Stan. The act? Everything. But what have I done? Nothing, but I can't go against the cards. Sadly, the cards ring true. Pete winds up dead from a possible mix-up of bottles, compliments of Stanton. Rather than drinking his typical moonshine, he downs a bottle of wood alcohol. Accident or murder? I'll allow you to be the decider, crypt dwellers. Mwah. With Pete out of the picture, Stanton takes over the duties in the mentalist act. This is his time to shine, and shine he does. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when the police come to the carnival in an attempt to shut it down, and Stanton shows off his new second sight. 
It is a thrilling scene that will leave you in chills at just how deceptive Stanton has become. Let me take a crack at that hick. You daffy, you want him to pinch the whole show? Slip me a couple of bills. You can't bribe these guys. Come on, come on, give me the dough. It won't work. I'm not going to bribe him. That's what they say. No, no, no. We're not bothering any of the town folk. <clears throat> Excuse me, Marshal. Huh? Now look, young fella, I don't want any more of your soft soap. Pardon me, sir, but there seem to be several bills coming out of your pocket. Another minute and you'd have lost your money, Marshal. And I see that you've bought your wife a present of a lovely silk handkerchief. That's very nice. I'm sure she's going to like that very much. And a pure white one for your daughter. How do you know I got a daughter? I know. Many things, Marshal. I don't know how I know them, but there's nothing supernatural about it, I'm sure. You see... My family was Scotch. And the Scotch are often gifted with powers that the old folks used to call second sight. You don't say. For instance, I can see that you have carried a pocket piece or curio of some kind for nearly 20 years. Several times you lost that luck piece, but you found it again every time. It means a great deal to you. You don't know exactly why. I would say that you should always carry that. I always do. Now, Marshal, this is none of my business, because I see that you're a man who is fully capable of handling his own affairs and well, almost anything else that's liable to come along. But my Scotch blood is working right this minute. And it tells me that there is one thing in your life that's worrying you, something that you find very difficult to handle, because all your strength and your courage and your authority in the town seems to be of no avail. It seems to slip through your grasp like water. Wait a minute, young fella. Who you been talking to? It is not long until he takes over the spotlight, leaving Xena like dust in the wind. The nail in Stanton's coffin concerning the carnival comes when it is discovered that he and Molly are carrying on a love affair, which is obviously crushing to Xena. With ill feelings towards them, Molly and Stanton head on their own after a shotgun marriage with the code in hand. One thing that is so clear is that Stan is always working a con. I've got the code. You know it as well as I do. And I've got you. Xena <laughs> ah, and Mr. Bruno, they aren't so smart as they think. We'll show them. You're not sorry? I should say not. Not one bit? Why should I be? I've never been so tickled in my life. You're sure? You're not just saying this? Baby, there's only one thing I'm sorry about. What's that? That I didn't think of this sooner. Stan trades his carny pinstripe jacket and straw hat for a tux with tails and a blindfold. He is now performing with Molly in a swanky club billed as a grand mentalist known as the Great Stanton. The audience is hanging on his every word, completely bewitched by his soothing voice. Together, Stan and Molly utilize Zena's and Pete's code to completely enrapture the patrons of a classy nightclub in Chicago. However, his show is not impressive to everyone. This is where we are introduced to the upper crust, Lilith Ritter. Lilith is not falling for Stan's tomfoolery. She questions whether he is on the level and attempts to challenge him. The question is, 
Will I feel better tomorrow? <laughs> Have you an answer? Yes. An answer this boy's got something. You're not taking him seriously. Why not? Why do you think... I'll show you. Isn't it some sort of a code they use? Of course. Notice how deliberately she accents certain words. I have to mention, I love Lilith's wardrobe, which was designed by the famed Bonnie Cashin. And you can check out some of her other clothing spectaculars and wonders in the noir flick Laura, and it happens every spring, a silly Ray Milland baseball picture that I once discussed on another pod I saw in a movie. There's also the flick Clooney Brown, which I highly recommend checking out. After presenting a business card to Stan, he learns that Lilith is a psychologist. A scheme begins to hatch and the wheels in his head start spinning. With her foot in the door in terms of the powerful and wealthy, they may be able to do some business together. He drops in for a visit and finds that Lilith makes a recording of each of her patient's visits. Make a record of everything? That's a wonderful idea. How did you get back in here? I fixed the latch on the door when I went out. I wanted to get a line on you. Maybe we can do a little business after all. You make one of these things every time you give a treatment? How could you do such a horrible thing? You don't realize what you've got here. We could set this town on its ear. Or is that what you wanted to talk to me about? Are you insane? That's not a bad hunch, lady. You got clients like that Grindle. You must be up to your knees in that Lake Shore and Lake Forest mob. And with that stuff you've recorded, you have no idea what I could do with it. A nightclub. Are you crazy? I'm getting out of there as soon as my contract's up. You see some of the letters I get. A couple of big spook people are after me now. I've got an altogether different idea. Look here, Mr. Carlyle. If you ever so much as mention to anybody... Please. What do you think I am? I haven't sufficient flow of speech to go into that. But I want you to know that I make these records only for my personal study. Mm -hmm. You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on your soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that uh, kind of... Takes one to catch one. Get out. With the personal information Lilith has gathered about some of Chicago's elite, Stan is hoping to utilize this material to manipulate them and capitalize on their vulnerability. There is also a sense that Stan and Lilith may not be that different, with him saying takes one to catch one. One of my favorite aspects of the film is the twists and turns. Many of the characters are not as they appear, a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you will. Lilith is hands down one of the most evil, frightening characters one will meet in a noir picture. She utilizes her profession for evil gains, which I find most terrifying about her, and it's just how convincing she is that makes it all that more chilling. Lilith is in agreement with Stan's scheme and surprisingly does not want anything out of it other than the agreement that Stan will submit to counseling. 
She even offers him to store his money in her office for safekeeping. This way, Molly doesn't know what devious things he is up to. Stan initially does not see the harm in Lilith's offer. However, one could surmise that although it may not procure instant compensation, there is still wealth in secrets, especially for a charlatan. Unfortunately for Stan, the future does not look too bright either. For when Xena drops by for a visit at Molly's behest, she once again breaks out her tarot deck. You still monkeying around with those things? Yep. What's wrong with them? Everything they say about me has come true. Another wire from New York. Is that where you're opening next? Oh, they're offering us the moon. But Stan hasn't made up his mind yet. You're making a mistake. Who? You. If you make the change in the work you're thinking of. You told her about it. How could I? I haven't seen How her How else did she find out about I it? I swear I haven't seen I a thing. I told you that I didn't want you to breathe it to a soul. She didn't have to tell me about it. It's all here plain as day. Doesn't say what this new stunt is, but you're going to the top like a skyrocket. Stan, turn that card over and we'll see how it'll end up. Who else did you tell? Look, Stan, turn that card over. What do I care what the card says? Leave it alone. The hangman. You better watch yourself. Is that bad? Not if he doesn't go against it. I thought... Wasn't that Pete's card? Sure. Now it's yours. Stan has no concern for the cards, ironically finding them to be tomfoolery. He instead blindly pursues his path of what he deems the spook racket. Utilizing the details given to Lilith during patient sessions, Stan uses this to convince them that he is able to communicate with the dead. One of his first victims is an elderly woman at one of he and Molly's shows, in which he insinuates that he is speaking to her daughter from beyond the grave. The lady wishes to know if she will ever see her daughter again. The answer is yes. If she believes in the hereafter, a life beyond the grave. Is that true? Has your daughter passed on? Yes. Wait! Don't anybody move. I see someone standing between me and that lady. The figure is very dim. But I see it's a girl. A lovely girl of 16. I get the name Caroline. That's my daughter's name. That's, that's Carol. Yes, she, she wants to speak to you. Speaking of graves, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's pay a visit to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Helen Walker, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the morgue. Let's all go to the morgue. Let's all go to the morgue to cut ourselves a corpse. Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. How are you feeling on this fine, moonlit night? Oh, very good. 
there's a fog outside that makes everything seem mysterious. How are you? Well, I just came from the carnival. In fact, here I wanted to give you one of my prizes for you to keep here in the morgue. A precious little Cupid doll. Oh, and a treat for later, a candy apple. Don't worry, it's not poisoned. Mwah. Oh, heavens, you, you shouldn't have. Although I will have that apple before my scientific experiments tonight. How's the carnival? I really do fancy a carnival. Of course, my favorite ride is the haunted house. I look forward to seeing all the spookies and creeps. Do you have a favorite attraction? Well, I have to say I also like the haunted house. Or, I don't know, I guess any kind of attraction in the dark. But I also enjoy every ride. I would say when I was younger, the Tilt-A-Whirl used to be my favorite, but I'm getting older, so it may make me puke now. I'm not sure. But I remember having a lot of fun on that one. That's an experiment for another time. Yes, the last time I rode the Tilt-A-Whirl was not an enjoyable experience. <laughs> no? I would have to say the same for the teacups. I will oh. never go on the teacups again. Too much spinning. Yeah. So, enough chit-chat. Let's get to slicing. Who do we have on the docket tonight? Well, tonight we are taking a look at Worcester, Massachusetts' own Helen Walker. What did you want to see me about? My friends and I were very much impressed with your performance the other evening. But that isn't why you asked me to drop in. No, it isn't. How did you happen to know so much about me? I read your mind. You mean to claim you can actually do that? How else would I know that your mother was dead? I'd never seen you before. You didn't make a reservation. The maitre d' didn't know who you were. That's true. That fellow you were with, the maitre d' says he's a pretty big guy in this town. That uh, Ezra Grindle. You gonna marry him? I? I got a feeling there was something between you. He's a patient of mine. Now, in regard to this feeling you have, psychologists admit the validity of mental telepathy uh -huh. under certain... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I thought this looked like one of those joints. You ever been psychoanalyzed? Yes, yes. Let's get to slicing her open. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, her alluring eyes. Number two, her glacial beauty. Number three, her good-naturedness. Yet, she was known to be a sharp-tongued starlet. Number four, her self-described method of being a re-actress. And number five, her soft features. Well, as you know, Dr. Carruthers, I have a fondness for anyone named Helen. Of course, I am an admirer of Miss Walker. Ah, yes, there are many, many lovely Helens walking about the various realms. Some more herbaceously menacing than others. Yes, uh... With her intense eyes, she is another person that falls on my list of I wish they could have played a vampire. Imagine Helen Walker saying, Look into my eyes. Look. Look into my eyes. 
Oh, I would have loved that. She would look great. I can picture her with a long cape and a distaste for crosses. Reading the coroner's report here, it says Helen was born in Massachusetts on July 17, 1920, and only lived until the young age of 47 years old. After watching her in Nightmare Alley, I gave her filmography a peek, and I suppose this explains why she had only 23 credits to her name. I've seen a fair amount of them, though. Uh, unfortunately, I've only ever seen her in one other film, Brewster's Millions, but I gotta be honest, I don't really remember it. In taking a look at what she's been in, I see she was lucky enough to play Fred McMurray's love interest. In murder, he says. Ugh, no thank you. Nothing like a romance with a bowl of oatmeal. Anyway, I found she was so great in Nightmare Alley. I definitely want to see her in more. What one should I check out? I do love the film call Northside 777. It's a 1948 noir picture in which she co-stars with James Stewart about a Chicago newspaper man that reopens a decade-old murder case. Mm. I mean, hands down, my favorite performance from her is in Nightmare Alley. She oozes charisma, confidence, and I absolutely adore her wardrobe, which consists of these amazing tailored suits and the way she wraps the great Stanton around her finger. She's incredible in this movie, but also frightening. I'm still kind of shocked that they didn't put Kate Blanchett in a suit in the new movie. I think that's the only thing I feel was missing from her portrayal of the character. I know. To me, if you have an opportunity to put Kate in a suit and you don't put Kate in a suit, it's just, it's sad. There's a missed opportunity there for sure. Okay, I'm adding that film you mentioned to my list of ones to book with the AV department, so thank you for that recommendation. And I have to agree with you, she's fantastic in this film. And I can't stop thinking about her outfits. So when we first see her, she's in that gown that I don't really remember. But when we see her in the suit, yes. And I also love her trench coat and hat disguise. And as for her character, ah, oh, sheesh, I was totally drawn in. I would have fallen for her to my detriment, I just know it. Yes, Lilith is everything you don't want in a doctor. Yeah. When you realize that, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because, as you said, it's easy to fall for her. Especially in terms of mental health. Like, she is just absolutely chilling and seems to enjoy the suffering she imposes on someone. Yeah, the way she gaslights him is so cool. Stan, you're wonderful. You think of everything. There's one thing I didn't think of. What's that? It was going to be this chilly tonight. I should have brought an overcoat. Well, I'm freezing myself, but I know a place where we can go. Where? Funny, I never thought of it before. It's not very far from here, either. You mean that place down the road? Don't be silly. I belong to the Rogers Park Beach Club. I have a cabana there. Yeah, I know a better place. Where? Marshall Field's window. Nobody ever goes to the beach club at this time of year. Nix. We don't want to take any chances. This thing's too big. 
I'm surprised a smart cookie like you. Supposing somebody saw us together and Grindle found out about it, then where would we be? Well, at least you can't say I didn't try. But I must say, I sort of like to see her get the better of this guy. I don't know if I should say that, but I just did. Let's face it, she's a boss, and she never makes the same mistake twice. I think what I love about Helen's performance and the character of Lilith, though, is that she's not the typical femme fatale type. Typically, in a noir, a femme fatale is more using their charms to seduce someone to obtain what they desire. But in this case, she's a fellow hustler, much like Stanton, and her character was very unique for the time because she's shown using her profession for an evil gain, and in the end, doesn't really pay for her crime. Yeah, that's very true. We can see how Stan thinks he is just terribly clever and in full control, but really, he's basically just a puppet. And I found it quite interesting to see a woman in a role like this for a change. When you first came to me, you were in bad shape. I had hoped that by getting at the roots of your anxieties, I could avert a serious upset. Well, I seem to have failed. Wait a minute. If you're thinking of throwing the cops at me, don't forget that you've been in this with me. Please, Mr. Carlyle, try to understand that these delusions of yours in regard to me are a part of your mental condition. When I first examined you, you were being tortured by guilt reactions connected with the death of that drunken mentalist during your carnival days. Well, what are you trying to pull? You can't prove anything. Besides, it was an accident. I told you that. I'm a psychologist, not a judge. What I want to explain to you is, all these things that you think you have done lately, or that have been done to you, are merely the fancied guilt of your past life projected on the present. Do I make myself clear? You must regard it all as a nightmare. Something intriguing that I learned was she ended up taking Gail Russell under her wing. And you may recall Gail from episode 22. When I uncovered her to examine the 1944 film, The Uninvited. Yes, how could I forget? Apparently, some say it was Helen that showed Gail the tranquilizing benefits of vodka, Mm. causing that young star, much like Helen herself, to become an alcoholic. Mm. That is unfortunate. I wish they would have gotten into Animal Crossing instead. Yes, that probably would have been more helpful and definitely healthier. Yeah, it's quite sad, especially in finding out that it was alcohol that led her to have a car accident. In 1946, on New Year's Eve, she picked up three hitchhiking World War II vets while driving to LA, and she hit a divider in the road, flipped her car, killing one of the soldiers, and she, Helen, was severely injured, and her career would forever be changed after that night. Wow, that sounds horrible. Yeah, some believe that this terrible chapter in her life caused her to take on roles which characters were dark, ruthless, manipulative, such as in Nightmare Alley, which was made in 1947, and then called Northside 777 in 1948. Mm. Yeah, I find that quite interesting and also a little scary because I'd like to believe that 
a healthy spirit is beneficial in taking on roles that are dark to kind of, you know, like maintain a balance. Speaking personally, I think in other times in my life when my world was more dark, I would have yearned to act in a more upbeat roles as, you know, a bit of break, a bit of a break from what's actually going on. But again, that's just me. I know that some folks just fully dive in. And wow, knowing that does add a certain tragic weight to some performances. Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, and by the 1960s, she faded completely from the public eye. And I read she suffered from a devastating house fire. Mm. Not sure how it started, but she apparently lost everything. And in looking at the coroner's report, it says she passed away March 10th, 1968 in North Hollywood, California. Do you know how she died? Yes, Walker died of cancer on March 10, 1968, in the North Hollywood section of Los Angeles, California, age 47. She is buried at Oak Hill Cemetery, Sterling, Massachusetts, Section A, Lot 40. I really wish we could have seen Helen in more pictures. She truly was talented, and it's sad to me that her life was cut short. Yeah, it's very sad. 47 is very young. I hope she got another chance to let her talent shine. But really, maybe she did. Maybe she is actually in the Nightmare Alley remake, but we just don't know it. Maybe she will actually be taking on the same role. Well, now that I've seen the new Nightmare Alley, I will say it did seem like Kate may have been possessed. Could be. I guess we'll never know. <laughs> well, chap, I must be hitting the road. I gotta admit, I'm a bit tuckered out from the carnival. So why don't we grab the blankie? Yes, it is time. Thank you, Helen, for sharing your short life with the world through the silver screen. Now, have restful sleepies. Good night. <laughs> <sighs> Always get. And now, on with the show. Chicago, Illinois. The city of Chicago finds itself with a mixed personality on its hands. Stanton Carlisle, known as the great Stanton nightclub mentalist, fell into a deep trance during his act in a nightclub. Before doing so, he was able to talk to and see, so he claims, the departed daughter of a famous Chicago society woman. Many proclaim him to possess spiritual phenomena. Sir Oliver Green, famous spirit sleuth of England, says that Stanton's contact is undoubtedly genuine. But in the meantime, Professor Samuel Kaufman Brown proclaims him a trickster. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of Nightmare Alley, starring the corpse of interest, Tyrone Power. Stanton may be a trickster, but there is also this sense that he may be causing comfort to these individuals, even if he is swindling them. One thing is certain, Stanton does have all the makings of a superb charlatan. Personality, flair, and confidence. He utilizes his confidence in an attempt to pull his biggest con of all when he pays a visit to another former patient of Lilith, Ezra Grendel. Ezra's life was shattered with the death of a former sweetheart of his, Dory. Ezra wants more than just to speak to a spirit in the wind. 
He wants his long-lost love materialized. Stan looks to Molly and asks her to assist him. Honey, look, it's not me that I'm thinking about, but what about this poor guy, Grindle? What's going to happen to him? Mrs. Peabody, all those other people that I've helped. Look, look at these. Hundreds of them every day. Simple, honest little people who believe in me. They say I've given them hope. Oh, I'm not worrying about them. They're going to be all right. But you won't. You've got to stop it, do you hear? You've got to, Stan, or I'll make you. I will walk out on you. Are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy. Just plain scared. Scared of what? I don't know. I, I can't explain it. But I feel... Well, you're going against God. Molly begrudgingly decides to play along with this sham. However, during the event, finds that she does indeed have a heart and exposes Stan as a fraud. The scene in which she pretends to be the materialized ghost of Dory is so eerily shot. The camera focuses on Molly in the distance, walking through misty trees, sauntering so slowly, as if she is floating. I love it. The cinematographer Lee Garms had not shot any noir pictures previously before making Nightmare Alley. In listening to the commentary on the Criterion desk, critic and historian Imogen Sarah Smith describes the lighting as soft, textured, and poetic. She also goes on to say about this scene in particular that the mist creates a veiled look. I couldn't agree more. With Stanton being found a fake, there is nothing else to do but skip town. Unfortunately, when he goes to grab his cash that Lilith has so kindly been safeguarding, he finds that there may be more than one con artist in town. It is rather thrilling to see how much she revels in his suffering. The spiral of Stanton is quite something to watch, and well, crypt dwellers, it is best experienced firsthand, and I recommend that you check out the motion picture for yourself. Although the film ends on a much happier note than the book, it is still worth witnessing with your own eyes. recently released a Blu-ray of Nightmare Alley, which I, of course, have picked up, and was tickled pink that it came with a selection of tarot cards featuring characters from the film. This film was also remade by master cinephile Guillermo del Toro and penned by himself and his partner in crime, Kim Morgan, in 2021. It is a worthy remake, and although it does have some similarities, the changes that the duo made are quite welcome, and I recommend checking this flick out. It was one of my favorite pictures in 2021. As for the novel itself, this book was quite controversial, 
especially for the grim ending, which was not as explored within the film as producer Daryl Zanuck wanted the audience to leave the theater on a happier note. There was also much negativity towards religion, as the author William saw religion to be the biggest con of all. Much of this aspect was left out of the film itself. In the book, it is implied that Stanton will be doomed to work as a geek until he inevitably drinks himself to death. There were also other elements that the production code recommended to the studio be left out, such as the implied story that Grendel had paid for a back-alley abortion for Dory. There were also sexual relations in the book between Lilith and Stanton. One of the biggest issues was the portrayal of not just showing Lilith getting away with her crime, but that she profits from it as well. This was strictly against the production code. It was said that the author did serve as a consultant to screenwriter Jules Firthman, but it was unclear how much he actually contributed to the final script. As for the carnival itself, in the film, it is one of my favorite aspects in terms of production design. 20th Century Fox hired over a hundred sideshow attractions and carnival folk to play roles in the film and built a full working carnival on 10 acres of their backlot to give it an authentic look and feel. Tyrone fought hard to play this role as he was considered the golden goose of the studio. And as I mentioned earlier, he was so tired of playing roles he previously found himself in. With the role of Stanton, he was out to prove he was more than just a pretty face. He was excited about the opportunity to play a heel with such a great character arc. The studio had major concerns, what this would do to his image in particular. Upon the release of the picture, reviews were mixed, and inevitably, the movie did rather poorly at the box office due to lack of marketing from the studio because of concerns of tarnishing Tyrone's image. Today, this is regarded as one of the greatest noirs ever put to celluloid, and according to Tyrone, one of his favorite roles. Nightmare Alley goes to the heart of what a noir is, as it shows the consequence of being pulled to the dark side, and that it is more than often the cause of ruin. Much like the geek, it is hard to look away from witnessing Stanton's personal nightmare. Mwah. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. I hope you enjoyed the episode, Crypt Dwellers. In my next episode, I will continue the series featuring Crafty, cunning, conniving charlatans with the 1948 film The Amazing Mr. X and Spotlight Turin Bay as the swindling con artist Alexis. Hope you tune in. Until then, don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt or reach me via postal mail, Attention Movie John, and that's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, P.A. 19145.
I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, you can find me on other programs that are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, such as Best Friends Forever. Simply visit Movie John, and that's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N dot com under MJ Podcasts. And while there, make sure to subscribe to our quarterly print publication. Our upcoming fall 2022 issue features Monsters of Cinema, and you don't want to miss it. Visit moviejohn.com slash shop. Well, I'll be back. Yeah, I'll be back. Like a homesick train on a one-way track. I gotta travel. And hit the gravel, but I'll be back. I'll be back. Well, I'll return. I shall return. Don't cool those lips. I wanna see them burn. Cause I'll be missing your kind of kissing. But I'll be back. I'll be back. Well, Crypt Dwellers. It is now time to close the coffin, and here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Stanton Carlyle. The spook racket? I was made for it. You think I was petrifying as a mortal? You have no idea what you're in for when I'm a specter, goblins and ghouls. I now leave you in the hands of the very nice, very evil, very famous AEW superstar, Danhausen. Goodbye, film pals. Greetings, goblins and ghouls. This is Danhausen. Very nice, very evil. This concludes our trip to the graveyard. Until next descent into the cinematic crypt, be sure to follow your illustrious spooky host, Betsina Belfry, or Belfry, whichever you may prefer, on Twitter at Cinematic Crypt so that you'll never miss a corpse. Yes, join us next time for another trip six feet under to pry open a coffin of Hollywood's past or be cursed.